Welcome to the Opening the Door podcast, a series that uses storytelling to help trainees and mentors understand the impact of bias and discrimination in the training environment and how to mitigate it. I'm Krista Hoffman-Longton. I'm a faculty member at IUPUI. Today, I'd like to welcome our featured guest, Katrina Reed-Hughes. Katrina, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. So Katrina, you may know that we always start our podcast series asking our guests to tell a story of a time in their careers when you may have experienced um, some kind of bias or microaggression. So I'm wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work, and then maybe jumping into that story that you have to share with us today. Okay. Well, I was trained as a clinical psychologist, and I guess one of the big things that really did shape my career was really trying to find a place where I felt like I could add value using the skills that I kind of saw my mom using in the village where I grew up. So becoming a psychologist seemed to be the best thing for me to do at that point. I'm a faculty member at Purdue School of Engineering and Technology, but my journey there has been kind of twisted and it's been an interesting journey. And so I I do have a story to share. I would love to hear it. Thank you so much. (laughs) The first story, and this is, I think of it as being a good example because it is a microaggression that really made me doubt myself. I still hear it when I talk to people now. I had a mentor, my um, lead professor, the chair of my dissertation, who would always correct my speaking. I grew up in a sharecropper's village that was created because sharecroppers were kicked off their land in 1939. It was homogeneously African-American. And so when I got to my graduate program in clinical psychology, my lead professor used to always say, don't say acts, say ask. And he would correct me constantly. And every time I use the word ask, I think about him and I think about how it made me feel like who I was was somehow wrong. And I know for a fact that the Southern dialect that I came into that program with has really faded away quite a bit. I think at the time, he really felt like he was helping me because people hear you when they think a certain thing. I don't think people understand that in that relationship where he was the person I was supposed to trust most, he really did some damage in that moment. It made me feel as though I wasn't as intelligent. And it's just none of it is true. So really not knowing me well enough to know that my culture and the way that I speak, especially around people that I'm comfortable with, shouldn't be attacked every time you say a word. One of the reasons why I think that's so powerful is that it does sort of make you question your experiences as a professional, as a researcher. Can you talk about how you kind of hear, you mentioned before you hear that in your head. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I hear it in my head. And I think one of the worst things about it is that when I hear other people use that word, it just comes back to me. And I would hate to think But now that we're having this conversation that in some ways it might have even had an impact on how I view other people, because that has been 30 years ago, I want to say. Can you say a little more about that, about how you how that experience may have shaped your perception of others? When I hear other people say acts, it makes me think about the changes that I was being asked to make and wonder if it had a, a positive impact on my career, even if it had a negative impact on who I felt myself to be. 
I've chosen not to correct people (laughs) when they say things like that. But I know that it does have an impact on how I look at another person until I really consciously choose to say, okay, these are issues that were created in me by early experiences. But I have to be very conscious about not making the same assumptions about their intellect or about how talented they are based upon what I was taught. It's a lot more conscious now. So yeah, I do believe that that has had an impact. It's an interesting complexity, the idea that for you, it sounds like you've kind of internalized that enough that when you are sort of, you know, talking with potential students, those kinds of things Mm -hmm. that, Mm -hmm. again, that voice is in the back of your head. When that happens, can you talk a little bit about kind of how you manage that? Yeah, being trained as a psychologist, I am. I know myself pretty well. <laughs> um, I'm just highly aware of it. And it's not just students. I have colleagues that do the same thing, that have the same dialect that I had. Fortunately for them, they didn't have to abandon it, right? But I am very aware that the same way that my you know, lead professor tried to change me and the perception that he had of me, I think about the benefits and the loss associated with that individual who I'm listening to in that moment. And I hear those dialect things and I know, or I assume that there's still people out there that will hear them and think that they are less than in some way. I have like part of me that's like, good for you. You know, you speak in your truth. You know, this is authentically who you are. And then there's a part of me that worries that, you know, here's another African-American woman or man that is going to be judged negatively about something that is just a natural part of who we are. That's kind of where I guess I feel myself, that anxiety that I have for that individual and that worry about how they will be perceived because we are at the top of our field, most of us, in terms of you're in the top what, 2.5% of educated African-Americans in the world. (laughs) And our dialect should be accepted, but I know that it's not. And so I do worry about that part. Will we be devalued because of something that shouldn't be a cause of being devalued? And I think realistically, it sounds to me as, as I hear you talk about your experiences, that there's a component of emotional labor that you are working through and dealing with as you talk about this, even as you said, 30 years into the future. So when you go back and think about that experience, you know, you mentioned this is obviously someone who was a mentor to you, who you cared about and trusted. If you could go back, do you wish that you had an advocate or maybe you yourself had responded differently to that experience or maybe had someone who was there to support you and step up? Yes. Yeah, I really do. I wish I had myself now. (laughs) I wish I could be for the person that I was at 22, who I am now, and could have been an advocate for that young person who um, neither of my parents graduated from high school. So I didn't really know how to be in this setting. And there was no one there to teach me. And I experienced a lot of different incidents where people challenged who I was at my core and In order to be successful, I felt like the only thing I could do was to take that. But at this point, if I heard someone talking to one of my students like that now, it would be easier for me to go into that person and be like, you know, that's really not helpful. And if you want to have a trusting relationship with this individual where they come to you with the important things, then you need to do the work and not expect them to change who they are in order to make you more comfortable with their Blackness or with their Latinxness, whatever it might be. 
So it sounds like it would be helpful to have a person there that really is a mix of advocating for that, you know, advocating for that learner, but also reminding them about the idea that the relationship between language and culture is really a part of identity. Yes, yes. And the whole code switching thing, you know, we talk about it all the time, but when we are in places where we are comfortable, and if you are really trying to develop that type of relationship, then you cannot halt conversations in the middle of them and expect that person to be able to trust you and not feel anxious and not feel like they're constantly needing to, you know, make these adjustments. So That's a great point. I can see how one of the most compelling arguments potentially for, you know, a white person who can't fully understand the experiences of a Black student, where you might say to them something like, when I have to make this switch in my head, I can't be as creative. I can't solve problems in innovative ways because I'm constantly thinking about, am I, am I saying it right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. That is it completely. You know. So when you think about this kind of scenario, it makes me think about, you mentioned earlier that you wish that you could be that person for your younger self. I'm yeah. wondering if you, if you think back and, you know, thinking of yourself now, what advice would you have for 22 year old you who's experiencing mm-hmm. these kinds of biases in the training environment? I think the advice that I would give is that in the long term, being who you are authentically will serve you better than trying to adjust who you are at your core to please anyone. And to speak up, don't assume that the individual is doing this with malicious intent, but don't let that stop you from letting them know how you feel. If a person cares for you and they care about your future, then they would be willing to hear that. So have that conversation. If you need someone to help you have that conversation, always reach out to someone that you trust and they can coach you on on how to do it. But that's something that has to happen. And it's not easy. I'm not suggesting that it is, but it's worth it in the long run. The compromises that we make when we're young, when we're older and have had more experiences, we look back on those differently. And I would like for other people not to have to go through that, not to have to question themselves at that level. If a person cares for you and cares for your career, then they would want to hear when they're making you feel a certain way. When you think about that, when you think about kind of saying to that person, I know that you care about my career. And so I want to tell you about this moment when you did something, I felt less than, I felt uh, marginalized. What other kinds of language or strategies do you think you can offer learners to be able Mm -hmm. to have that difficult conversation in a time like that? Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I mentioned the coaching because they may not have that language and they may not, depending on who the person is, it's often helpful to have someone else give you a sense of how you should approach another individual when there's a power differential like that. So that's the part that I guess I'm speaking to in terms of the coaching. Doesn't have to necessarily be someone in the faculty if you don't feel safe there either. But there will be people that you can go to to kind of talk this through. And I only say that because I know how difficult it is. In terms of the language, back then, I have no idea what the language would have been. And I know that people, they have so much control or it feels like they have so much control over your, of the trajectory of your career. But my advice would be to leave that conversation Go home, write about it, and think about the things that you would want to say, and then schedule some time to speak to that person afterwards. And I'm thinking about 
someone who's 22, right? Because you may not feel like you have the right words, but give yourself that space and that time to get coaching and then practice what it is that you really want to say so that you will be heard. I think that that's really wonderful advice. Um, Katrina Reed Hughes, thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed hearing about your story. It sounds like it was very hard. I'm not sure that enjoy is the right word, but I really (laughs) appreciate your willingness to just share your experience with us and with our future colleagues. So thank you again for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of our listeners. Opening the Door is a podcast series that uses storytelling to help trainees and mentors understand the impact of bias and discrimination in the training environment and how to mitigate it. We'll be back next time with another story from a great faculty member. Katrina Recuse, thank you again.